Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your weekly prescription of hard-hitting and entertaining science. I'm Mark West and I'll be guiding the way as we dare to go where other science shows just won't. Joining me on the panel today are Tilly Boleyn. Hi. Ian Wolfe. G'day. Charles Willock. Hello, Mark. Jackie Peffer. Hi. And Vanessa Gardos. Hi. Now get used to the voice of Vanessa as our intrepid reporter brings us all the latest in scientific news. Love your lobster? Salivate over salmon? Now may be the time to prepare for a life without prawns. Seafood will all be all but a memory by 2048 if our increasing human population keeps devouring fish and polluting oceans at current rates, comes a warning in the research journal Science. Species have been disappearing faster and faster, according to Boris Worm of Dalhousie University in Canada. If the long-term trend continues, all fish and seafood species are projected to drop by 90% before the middle of the century. This study is the first comprehensive assessment of the state of human influence on ocean biodiversity. It is based on a wide array of historical and experimental data. 29% of fish and seafood species have collapsed already, and this trend is accelerating. The problem is much greater than losing a key source of food. Damage to oceans can affect not only fisheries, but the overall productivity and stability of the ocean ecosystem. There is some good news, though. It's not too late to turn things around. The scientists studied 48 marine areas around the world that have been protected, and the diversity of species in these areas have recovered dramatically, improving productivity and stability. By increasing the numbers of protected marine areas, we might be able to enjoy the taste of tuna for a lot longer. The high consumption of sweetened food and drink increases the risk of developing pancreatic cancer, according to a new study from Karolinska Institute. Pancreatic cancer is a very serious form of cancer that is possibly caused when the pancreas produces increased levels of insulin to balance out glucose metabolism. Of course, eating heaps of sugar will make insulin levels sore. But only now have scientists been able to show that the consumption of sweetened food and drink can affect the chances of developing pancreatic cancer. A dietary survey was conducted on 80,000 healthy men and women over the period of seven years. 131 people from this group developed cancer of the pancreas. The researchers have now been able to show that the risk of developing pancreatic cancer is related to the amount of sugar in the diet. Those who drank high quantities of fizzy or syrup-based drinks ran a 90% higher risk of pancreatic cancer than those who never drank them. People who added sugar to food or drinks, like coffee or tea, at least five times a day, had a 70% higher risk than those who didn't. Despite these risk correlations, the chances of developing pancreatic cancer are quite small, but it remains one of the most serious forms of the disease. It is difficult to treat and often discovered too late, making for very poor prognosis for its sufferers.
Maybe it's worth a second thought next time you go for that spoonful of sugar in your coffee or the refreshment of an icy cold can of soft drink. Those cake-eating mathematicians have finally devised a fairer way to share a cake. The new equitable method allows you to choose a slice with more icing, if you're that way inclined, but the trade-off will mean that your piece ends up smaller than one with less icing. The research is based on the principle of surplus procedure and is published in the Notices of the American Mathematical Society. Apparently, the traditional way of dividing a cake is the so-called cut-and-choose approach. One person cuts the cake in two and the other chooses a half. And I always thought that this was the Gardos method of fair cake distribution, solely invented by my brother and I. And I can guarantee that this method ensures both people get the same size portion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're equally happy. Surplus procedure works by determining how much certain qualities of a cake are valued over other qualities, like chocolate icing versus sprinkles versus cream and jam filling. An impartial referee then uses these weighted values to calculate where to cut the cake. This system can be used for two or three people, but apparently doesn't quite work so well for groups of more than three. So I guess the moral of this story will remain, surplus procedure or not, those with less friends eat more cake. Thanks, Vanessa. You're listening to Diffusion, the only international science show you'll ever need. Now, this story is an insult to the Australian in me. Is Vegemite illegal in America? Ian Wolfe takes a look into the black stuff. Vegemite has been banned in the USA. And then Vegemite, the ban is a hoax. Both stories have flashed around the newspapers and the blogosphere lately, but can they both be true? Popular hoax debunking site Snopes.com declares this to be a hoax and supplies quotes from Kraft and the American Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Joanna Scott, spokesperson for Vegemite's maker Kraft, said the Food and Drug Administration doesn't allow the import of Vegemite simply because the recipe does have the addition of folic acid. The FDA is quoted, if they're adding folate to it, boosting it up, technically it would be a violation. Folate, or folic acid, is a nutrient that prevents all kind of heart and cancer problems as well as preventing birth defects of the brain and spinal cord the FDA go on to deny that they sent an import alert against Vegemite, although they admit that it's technically illegal under the felony fortification laws set up in the 70s and 90s because folate is added. Beer that doesn't give you a hangover was invented last century by adding vitamin B1, B6, B12 and the amino acid cysteine to the beer. They banned vitamin B fortified beer because healthy drunks sent the wrong message. The Food and Drug Administration changed the laws eventually in 1999 six years after their own study showed that folate helped prevent neural tube birth defects. However, they only allowed fortification in refined cereals and only at a very low dose. A safe dose that's sufficient to prevent birth defects, but not heart disease. Whole grain cereals are illegal to fortify because they're presumed to already have enough vitamins. The argument was that adding folic acid or folate to just any food in your diet would mask a vitamin B12 deficiency in the blood tests. The simple solution of fortifying with both folate and B12 to ensure that such deficiencies will be cured, was not permitted. The reason, according to the former commissioner David Kessler, is that they didn't want teenage boys and the elderly having to consume nutrients that were added just for the benefit of pregnant women. Kraft get its lawyers to say that hops are a cereal crop and Vegemite is made from the fermented hops that are left over after making beer, but then they'd have to allow healthy beer that didn't give you a hangover. So the FDA didn't send word to the Border Patrol, but legally they could have and should have. 
The newspaper and online stories directly quote Daniel Fogarty saying he was hassled going over the US-Canadian border, and Paul Watkins, who said he's about Australia shop, was forced to stop importing Vegemite. If you look online, Paul Watkins has his shop at aboutaustraliashop.com, and all the Vegemite-containing products are always out of stock. So those parts of the story are real. He doesn't answer emails. Daniel Fogarty was once found at the Geelong Advertiser, which is owned by News Limited. Former Geelong Advertiser reporter Daniel Fogarty was among people to raise international alarm after he and his partner Sarah Egan were asked by US Border Police if they were carrying any Vegemite into the country because it contains folate. It's important that this was a land border crossing from Canada, not air travel. It looks like the Geelong Advertiser is the origin of the story. They don't answer my emails either. And since I emailed them, they've taken the articles off the webpage. Good old advertiser, a media watch favourite. American Shane Simmons writes in his blog that he had his Vegemite taken away flying from Hawaii to Vancouver because it was considered a gel. All liquids and gels were trashed because everyone knows that anything not solid can explode on a plane. There's no word of them confiscating good old American peanut butter. In light of the free trade agreement, perhaps the black salty sandwich spread should be banned here as well. That was Ian Wolfe who apparently never touches the stuff.
Welcome back to Diffusion. That was Hell Yes by Beck. In the discussion on global warming, the government seems to be shouting nuclear power, but only whispering nuclear weapons. Charles Willock checks out the web on this important issue. According to Wiki, at 11.32am on the 30th of October 1961, the Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev detonated a huge nuclear explosion, Tsar Bomba. The mushroom cloud of this 50 megaton device was 60 kilometres high and the seismic blast could be measured on its third time around the world. Atmospheric focusing caused blast damage up to 1,000 kilometres away and the heat generated could have caused third degree burns at a distance of 100 kilometres. For a brief 39 nanoseconds, the energy released was equivalent to approximately 1% of the power output of the sun. That is certainly what you would call a barbecue stopper. Tsar Bomba was built using off-the-shelf components of the time in under 15 weeks. You can find more information about Tsar Bomba on Wikipedia and the Discovery Channel footage of the Tsar Bomba detonation can be found on Google Video. There's a problem of trust, mistakes and abuse. How do we view other countries, for example North Korea or Iran, who have considerable fossil fuels when they say they wish to go nuclear? On that basis, how are other countries likely to view a decision by Australia to go nuclear? The benefit of releasing the concentrated energy within a neutron has unfortunate side effects if it is not controlled. The compounding problem is that it has to be controlled for a very long time indeed. The French Institute of Radio Protection and Nuclear Safety website, www.irsn.fr, has many interesting reports. Chernobyl, 20 years after, carries a dramatic animation of the cesium-137 radioactivity concentration over Europe between the 26th of April and the 6th of May 1986. That site also carries more recent stories. For example, that the Swedish Forsmark I nuclear reactor shut down automatically on the 25th of July 2006. That and other reactors of the same type remain shut as of the report dated the 8th of September. www.nuclearfiles.org is a valuable historical log of nuclear events via its timeline and issues links. The documentation of near-miss military and industrial accidents makes challenging reading indeed. Disturbing and serious as they might be, those and other sites logging nuclear accidents, military near-misses and political sabre-rattling seem far too early for us to reliably ensure nuclear security over the next 10 to 100,000 years. Can we really be sure that at no point in the future, or even in the near future, that someone won't make a decision, as for Japan, that it was considered more sensible to drop a nuclear bomb, even two bombs, than to not drop one at all? What about reducing energy usage? Just a week or so ago, Prime Minister Howard was saying that all states should be involved in solving the national water crisis. Yet the same rules of inclusion do not seem to apply to greenhouse issues. For some reason, the discussion of global warming should only be defined as the economics of nuclear power generation. Indeed, the issue became when and how we go nuclear, rather than if and why. Even a high school student could see that such a restricted public consultation process fell a long way short of determining the best energy policy for Australia's future. In stark contrast, 
while over a short period Sydney had reduced its water usage by at least 20%. Somehow energy reduction wasn't even on the agenda. It is also difficult to understand how Australia could be an energy superpower if we follow others along the nuclear route. How does following, that is, buying and using other people's science and technology, make one a leader? Even if we consider possible advances in mining technology, digging a lot of ore out of the ground does not make one a superpower, just a major user. Given the rapid change in technology for solar cells and Australia's skill in that area, there could well be an argument for making Australia a solar photovoltaics superpower, but a nuclear energy superpower, that seems very unlikely. Society seems to have a remarkably short memory for lessons of the past, and has only been 45 years since Tsarbomba. The rhetoric of the Cold War was that no one would use nuclear weapons because it would ensure their own destruction. The new message is that nuclear energy is clean and green, and we have been reassured that there are no problems, even with widespread nuclear power use. And yet, we aren't even allowed to contribute to the wide-ranging discussion on reducing global warming. It's time for a referendum on our future. One of the problems with governments claiming mandates at election is that more than one issue contributes to the 50.1% that defines the winning margin. However, there is a logical and easy way around that. Australia can decide that going nuclear at an election is the issue if we had a referendum question. It then becomes a matter of what question we should ask at that referendum. Thanks, Charles. This is, it's a really interesting question. If uh, we do go nuclear, do you think we're going to stop exporting coal and gas? Because that would be the, the global warming responsible thing to do. Well, that certainly seems like the ethical thing to do. But uh, my impression is that, no, what we'd do is we'd continue exporting that and we go around exporting uranium and using uranium as well. That seems a pretty unwise kind of approach. Well, it's making a lot of money for Western Australia at the moment. Uh, yes, that's true. And as a result, distorting um, the economic uh, field rather rather badly, I'd suggest. If only there was another way for them to make money. It's a pee. It's the only thing they have to do. <laughs> well, what about solar, for example? Solar seems like a, a pretty high-tech thing. It requires a high level of skill. It's the sort of thing that you don't have to spend a lot of money on if you're exporting because the freight costs are pretty low. So, you know, why not go solar? Well, it always struck me why... Australia has millions of hectares of uninhabited bare desert in the middle of the country that aren't paved with solar panels. Indeed, why I think David Suzuki was talking about this stuff when he came to Australia, why there aren't solar panels on every building in Australia and every new house that's built. Uh, I realise that solar power is not as efficient as, um, as other forms of power, and I'm not sure the cradle-to-grave calculations on that, but surely this is something we should be investing in. I reckon that that's a, a really important point. The issue seems to be that there's been virtually no really serious moves in the nuclear industry uh, for quite some time. No remarkable changes in, in um, innovation or anything like that. And yet, for solar, there seems to be an enormous push uh, over the past couple of decades, and that's all paying off. So why can't we go with something where there is a real promise, even though it's more expensive at present? It turns out that uh, it's surprisingly similar in terms of cost to, um, to nuclear energy, but the opportunities for solar, for example, seem considerably greater. They don't have the nasty byproducts that nuclear waste or that nuclear power seems to have either. 
Hmm. Isn't the Victorian government funding a massive solar power project in country Victoria at the moment? Vanessa, do you know something about yeah, this? Yeah, I just recently read a new scientist. It was kind of tucked away on the side of a page just talking about this new development in Victoria and I can't even remember what year it was supposed to be finished but I was just surprised because I'd heard nothing else about it apart from this little tiny thing. I don't know if anyone else has well, heard. I'm putting together a story for a future show on the subject and it's a $350 million plant and the federal government's given them a couple of million as part of being green uh, and it'll produce 154 megawatts which is pretty cheap sort of power. I think a coal power plant that produces the same sort of power. If it's 50 years old and comes with a mine, it will cost you about a billion. Right. So, and that's brown, dirty coal. Okay. So it's, these are new solar cells that are 35% efficient, which is twice as good as anything else on the market. So that might be pushing it to make it cheaper than coal. So why hasn't this made the news? Like, why is it not a huge story? It's not a huge story. It was on late line. Is this a Victorian government thing or a federal government thing? The federal government's kicked a tiny bit in, but I believe it's a private company that's putting it together. Oh, really? Okay. Well, here's a question for the panel. How much extra would you be willing to pay on your electrical bills for green electricity? Well, the point is that it's actually cheaper. Um, When the energy minister was interviewed on Late Line and this was put to him that, well, why is there this assumption that... Why is it more expensive? You keep saying it's more expensive, it's not very efficient... What is it that makes solar power more expensive than coal or nuclear? And the energy minister's answer was, well, I don't know, and that's why we're doing the pilot plan in Victoria, to find out why it's more expensive. Well, but surely if this is a private company, they're going to be looking for a return. You know, it's they're... cheaper. There's no fuel. There's no waste. It's cheap. Mark, I don't, I don't know whether you realise, that, and this may be an important aspect of it, is that if you've got genuine green electrons and something rather than glow-in-the-dark green nuclear ones, that may contribute to a significant difference. Most people are actually willing to pay at least the same amount for green energy. There's all these green energy companies going around New South Wales that don't actually have any solar power farms or dams or, or wind farms, but they're selling green electricity through a New South Wales state government scheme anyway because people want to buy it. I think purely on an opinion basis for myself here... If green energy is reliable, as just as reliable as current energy forms we're using now, then I think it's almost the responsibility of the individual to maybe pay that little bit extra and keeping in mind that it is our environment and it's not just the government's responsibility. I actually went to the, one of those internet sites about how you can do sustainable green energy and it's if you do 100% green energy, it's an extra $300 to your electricity bill a year. Which isn't that much, especially if you're living in a share house where it gets split up anyway. That's less than a dollar a day. Wow. Wow. Maths. Love it. <laughs> We're all qualified scientists here on Diffusion, aren't we? That, my friends, is all we have time for on this week's edition of Diffusion. This week, we were produced by Tilly Boleyn in the lofty studios of 2SCR in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, 
and across the world on our podcast. Thanks to the team of Tilly, Jackie, Ian, Charles and Vanessa. We, you can pick up our podcast in iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. Or you can email us with any questions at diffusion at 2SER.com. I'm Mark West. Thanks for joining us. We'll go out to the sounds of Mr. Scruff with Get a Move On. See ya.